Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name this morning. Welcome you to this time in our service. Turn with me to James chapter 1 this morning for a, uh, a message. Apparently, we're on a theme here this morning. I, um, I didn't really consult my Sunday school book whenever I this message was developed in my mind. I um, wasn't sure what I was going to share on this morning. Um, at the beginning, at the beginning of the week, and for me, I I like to know sometime about a week or ten days before I actually have to share what I'm going to share on, because I find it rather. Um, uh, I'm not the type that likes to go till Saturday morning, and I still don't know what I'm going to talk about the next morning. That's just my personality. So I wasn't quite sure Monday morning yet what I was going to share on. And I sat down and my, my reading for that morning was James 1 in my, in my personal reading. And it really resonated with me because, um, of the circumstances that we have, um, gone through here in the last, oh, weeks and months and days even. And, uh, so I decided to share on some thoughts James here has in his epistle at the very start here. And I didn't realize that it was going to relate so much to our devotional and our Sunday school lesson, but we'll just, uh, we'll just take it as, um, what we were supposed to focus on today and leave it at that. So we're going to read, uh, James chapter one and verses one to 16. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad greeting. My brethren counted all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, Trying your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect worth, work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord." A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low. Because of the flower of the field, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. So I've entitled this message this morning, The Trying of Our Faith, and I I have pulled that out of verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Just a little background here on James. You may be interested to know that he addresses the uh, the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. That's the That's the audience that he specifically is addressing here. As far as we can tell, James is probably the oldest book in the New Testament canon, even though it falls very near the end. As we well know, the Bible wasn't 
wasn't ordered in a chronological way. So the church was very young whenever James wrote this epistle, this letter, and he he was writing to an audience that was likely very Jewish because at the beginning of the church, there wasn't Gentiles, uh, at least not very many at first, uh, in the church. It was very very much a Jewish church. So that's, that's who he's primarily addressing. And um, much like uh, the epistles of Peter and John and Jude, um, they're lumped together and called general epistles because they don't have a specific audience necessarily. Um, Paul pretty much directed all his letters to the church at Rome or to the church at Corinth or to Timothy or Titus. Uh, here we don't have that specifically necessarily um, specified who this is to other than the 12 tribes. And um, obviously we believe that there's principles and things we can learn as well here, even though we wouldn't necessarily be Jewish this morning. As we all know, or I, I presume we know, James was also the presiding elder at the church in Jerusalem, and he was uh, the half-brother of Jesus, much like Jude uh, was. I would say if there is a key verse in the book of James, if I had to pick one, it probably would be verse 27 of the first chapter. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. I think James was very jealous and he was very interested in maintaining and teaching pure religion, which uh, instantly, um, if there's such a thing as pure religion, then we can deduct that there's such a thing as unpure, impure religion. And James was very interested that we keep religion pure. Now, if that was his interest, and you read through the book of James, it isn't very hard to understand. It's very practical, very practical. And, um, in fact, it's so practical that it bothered Luther. If you, Those of you that know a little about Martin Luther, he did not appreciate the book of James very much at all. Because in his mind, he felt like it focused too much about doing stuff rather than faith. And uh, there's reasons that maybe Martin Luther came to those deductions. Uh, his, he was a product of his times, and he perhaps overreacted to, um, to those uh, teachings of his times. All right, so let's, um, let's just get right into this now. In verses 2 and 3... Um, we have two words that show up, temptations and trials. In our minds today, uh, we often interpret the thing of temptation as some kind of a carnal urge to participate in something that is not godly, and a trial is something, a happening or a series of events in life that are humanly unpleasant, and we see that as somewhat of a test that has the potential to either cause us to react in a godly way or an ungodly way. In our minds, we kind of think of those things as two different things. In this reading, uh, the the word temptation and the word trial are the exact same word. If you look it up in the Greek, it's the same word. And we could, we could read this passage uh, very nicely and insert the word trial where the word temptation appears. The only place that doesn't fit as nice is when you go down to where he specifically talks about 
temptation in verses 12 through about 15. It does seem like there he's referring to temptation more as we would think of it. But in verses, um, in verse 2, my brother encountered all joy when you fall into divers temptations. We would more properly read that. Count it joy when you have, when you have different kinds of trials, different kinds of tests. That's perhaps a better way we could, um, we could read that. In the New Testament context, if you would take that word trial and you would just do a word search on it, and you'd find where that appears throughout the rest of the New Testament, almost without fail, that word will come up in a context where the circumstances or the way the word is used is referring to um, the the circumstances that, that a Christian sustains whenever he is under persecution. So in other words, it's more of a collective thing where the, the address is to a physical harassment or persecution simply for the fact that a person or a group of people identifies as a Christian. And I would just point to, um, I'm just going to read a few verses here where, the, where it comes up. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul's talking about the church of Macedonia, and he says, How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. In Hebrews 11, the writer there talks about, um, in that, in that uh, faith chapter, he talks about how people had trial of cruel mar- mockings and scourgings and bonds and imprisonment. So it uses that word trial right in the context of, of persecution. Peter has this word, he, he brings it up twice in the book of First Peter. He talks about the trial of our faith being much more precious than gold, though it be tried with fire. And then in chapter 4, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as something strange happening to you. So that kind of gives you a background of how the New Testament would somewhat speak of it. However, here James talks about divers trials. It seems like, it seems like he broadens that out just a bit. And he says, you know, there's all kinds of trials. Okay, there's divers trials. And so that's the way I'd like to think about it uh, this morning. Not necessarily as in-your-face uh, persecution that's easy to identify, but more the, the very personal way that we face trials sometimes. And I had to think of that as I thought of our own congregation here and how that our trials are somewhat more specific, perhaps, um, I had to think of, uh, you know, Delvin and Christy and, and the experiences they're going through right now and Alan and Krista and the, the things that they have uh, experienced in the last weeks and Brother Dennis here as he um, faces his health issues. They're very specific, uh, and yet it's a trial. It's, it's a test. It's, it's an unpleasant circumstance that we really don't have an answer for. You know, we sit here as humans and, and we, we want the whys of things. And we, and we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily given that. But I would like to, to just take us to James here and he maybe, he maybe helps us to sort through this, why these trials are and uh, what we can do with them. So the first one I'd like to look at comes from verse two. 
Count it all joy. It seems so paradoxical. How can you be in this trial, something that if I had the ability to pick, and if I could choose, I would say, no, I'll pass. I'll pass on that one. But he says, count it all joy. And Peter, as I pointed out earlier when I read those verses, he talks about the trying of faith being more precious than gold. Okay, often we re- we uh, compare things um, to uh, something has great monetary value. He said, and gold's about as about as high a value of anything that we in our human minds think of. You know, gold. That's that's kind of the standard. And um, but Peter says the trial of your faith. He said it's more precious than gold. And he said gold that perishes. After a while, the gold's going to perish too. He goes. I think one of the many paradoxes, or one of the things that divide, or or uh, maybe divides not the word, that, that sorts people out, sorts out a non-Christian from a Christian, is indeed the way we view the hard things of life. And it's very simple why that is. Because if you're not a Christian, and you do not have an eternal perspective, The only thing that matters is what happens to me today. And it had best be pleasant. A a non-Christian is very short-sighted. And when you have that kind of an attitude and that kind of a perspective, it will breed a very selfish and self-protected, protective kind of a person. And I think, uh, as it was pointed out maybe in our Sunday school lesson, we are humans. Christians, whenever we become Christians, we don't get rid of our humanity completely. We're still human people. And, uh, you know, when we step on a nail, it still hurts, right? So we're not like superhuman. But we do have the grace of God that endues us with that grace as it is needed. So we're human. We don't go looking for trouble, necessarily. Well, we don't. But we do know that trouble is inevitable. And with, with a, a eternal perspective, it will temper how we relate to troubles and trials that we have on this earth. And again, this, this came up in our Sunday school lesson, I do believe, or in the devotional, I can't remember. But Jesus talked to this. He said, I don't want you to really worry about people that can kill the body. Because that's, that's all they can do. But what I want you to worry about is the person that can cast your soul into hell. He said, that if you want to worry about something, that's what you really should worry about. And, I, and again, uh, our minds all go to um, our current circumstances. And I think if, if there's anything that has um, um, maybe come to light through this whole COVID episode that we've, we have uh, endured the last six months or so, is perception. It, it, it comes down to perception. And the world around us, I, I think this has probably um, emphasized the perception of the world around us to a degree that we have not seen before, that there is, like, sickness and death is the absolute worst thing that can happen to us. That is the epitome of the worst thing. And so we will go to any measure to 
help you to avoid any kind of sickness or adverse circumstances that will come from uh, this, this COVID. Now, the irony of that is some countries have taken that to such uh, uh, an extent that people are dying of starvation so they don't die of COVID. And, and they're, they're suffering more from, uh, from the attempt to avoid a problem that they're creating exponentially bigger problems because of it. it here, here in our own country, thankfully, we haven't quite got to that point, but it, we, we're not escaped. Because in this country, we have come, we are in a generation that we are not allowed to have any problems or troubles. That is the worst thing that could possibly happen. So what our government has done is began to just write out checks like drunken sailors, really. I mean, I, I don't wish to speak ill of our government, but it is not wise what they are doing. But the whole concept behind it is so ironic, because on the one hand, we want to save you from any sickness or death, but on the other hand, you, you can't suffer financially either, so we'll just begin to write checks and write checks and write more checks. I'm just pointing out that that is the world we live in, that we have reached a point that because of the godless, godlessness of our society, suffering is like the absolute thing that has to be avoided at any cost. I don't want, it doesn't matter if it's health-wise, economically, whatever it is, we're not allowed to go through any hardship. And folks, I, do I have to tell you that is completely anti-biblical. It's completely ungodly. It is not the way we should be thinking about things. Here's a godly perspective. In John 16, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and I'm just going to pull a few verses out of, out of that, that Jesus teaches a, a godly perspective on trials and sufferings. He goes like this in verse 21. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. Now, we all understand that. Any of us that have uh, participated in childbirth get that, okay? So then he goes on in verse 22, he says, And now you, and ye now therefore have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice with a joy that no man can take away. In other words, he's saying, you're not having fun times right now, but I tell you what, good things are coming. Much like childbirth, at a point later, things are going to be way better than what you understand them to be right now. And then 11 verses later, in, uh, in 33, verse 33 of John 16, he summarizes this and he says, these things I have spoken unto you, that you might have peace. He said, I've given you this teaching so that you can live in peace. Now, here's the punchline. He goes, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's it. That is your lot in the world. You will have tribulation. But much like the lady that has the baby, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. In other words, the world cannot get the better of you. Even though you have all this trouble and tribulation, it doesn't have to get the better of you. You have a joy which no man can take away. So bottom line, hard times, while we don't like them, aren't something we necessarily 
have to run, run from at all costs. Second thing I'd like to point out comes from verse 3 and 4. Trials will produce maturity. I have no doubt if you're any type of a reader or listen to any stories at all throughout your life, that you have read or observed people that have gone through deep, deep waters in their life, and they have responded properly. They had the, the, the biblical um, outlook. They had eternity as their focus, and they responded well. These people have will generally, almost always, if not always, come to a degree of maturity at a much faster pace, in a much deeper way, than those who have largely coasted through life. I had to think of Job. Job is the man we always go to as kind of that epitome, that, that you know, gold standard example of a person that, that faced life well when he was suffering. In Job 23, toward the end of the book, he goes, But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So, do you think Job was a more mature person before or after his suffering? Well, we know the answer, don't we? Verse 4, particularly, it says, Let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You know, maturity is not a process that happens overnight. A perfect work doesn't happen quickly. But the results are a wonderful, wonderful thing. Usefulness is almost always a result of maturity. There might be some scars, but the fruit is a pleasant thing. I had to think of that as I was um, um, just looking over the landscape here the last several days. You know, in, in my mind, a cornfield is the most beautiful sometime in July. You know, sometime when it's sometime between knee high and and maybe soaking. That's when I like to look at corn. It's it's, it's aesthetically beautiful. But when is corn useful? Right now. Corn is useful right now. People are out picking corn, and it's a bumper crop, and they're hauling it to the elevators. And it's this is when it's useful, but it's not so beautiful anymore. But you know what? It's mature. This is when it is useful, and it's uh, it's much that way in life. Um, as we as we go through life, and we have these trials, and we mature, that's when we 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 come to our our uh, height of usefulness. Perhaps you could say. I, uh, I was talking to my brother a while ago, and he was telling me about a, uh, a person in his uh, church group there that he knows that, um, that he grew up in a, in a home that was far, far less than ideal, way less than ideal. Uh, particularly the father in that home was, was not a stellar character at all, um, chose to live a very godless life, and yet he chose to continue to live with the family. So I don't know whether that's a plus or a minus, but that, that was the case. But it was a very large family, and all of the children have turned out to be very godly people. And my brother inquired of this particular sibling that was a part of that 
that family, he said, can you explain to me how you had every, you and your siblings had every opportunity and every reason to turn out very, very poorly, and yet you all chose a very noble path in life, and you're all Christians, and you're doing well, and you have good families, and so on and so on. Can you explain to me why it turned out so well for you and your siblings, and I look at other families with similar situations, and it's not good at all. And his response was this. He said it was my mother. He said, my mother made the best of those circumstances, and she filled in where my father would not. Now, I'm sure that mother lived an unbelievable trial, okay, right? But the fruit of that trial and the way she responded to that trial produced unbelievable um, precious fruit. And I just share that uh, with you for whatever it's worth. Um, trials aren't fun, and some of them are really not fun. But it's much the way we respond to that thing as to whether we will mature in a way that is God-honoring. I also had to think of uh, Moses in Deuteronomy. We're not going to take the time to turn to Deuteronomy 8. But basically, the whole book of Deuteronomy is a sermon that Moses preached the children of Israel right before he died. He just gave them a long 30 chapters to... I don't know if he took breaks or not, but it was a long sermon he preached there, and he covered a lot of territory. And he said in Deuteronomy 8, he said, The reason God had you wander through the wilderness and eat manna for all these years is that he wanted to humble you and he wanted to prove you. And he wanted you to be sure when you came into the promised land that you did not do this of yourself. It was God that sustained you. Now, that's very condensed version of what he said. He said it much better, and you should read Deuteronomy 8, to get the context. In other words, he said, God knew that this time in the wilderness would mature you in a way that nothing else could. All right, point number three. comes from verse 5. Trials produce wisdom. Closely related to maturity is wisdom. According to the dictionary that I looked in, wisdom was defined as this. It is knowledge of what is proper and reasonable and possessing of good sense and judgment. There is certainly something about experience of anything, especially hard things, that will produce wisdom in a person that nothing else could possibly have done. can't be acquired in any other way. That is particularly why the the younger people are admonished over and over again in the Bible to pay attention to the older people, specifically, and really uh, the only reason that that is given uh, is because older people, by default of their age, have more experience, and hopefully, if they, res- if they have responded to the trials and the things that they faced in life in a good way, they have wisdom to impart to the younger generation that you can't have just because of your age. They've seen more than you have. They've experienced more. So that's an easy concept to get a hold of. But David said in the Psalms one time, he said, I'm wiser than all my teachers. Now, that sounds a little stuffy at first. But the reason he said that is he said, I have a connection and a context my teachers don't have. So there's that part of it, too. You can be very young and very wise just because you are a godly person. So we can't discount that either. But I, I had to think of the um, 
of the story that Jesus told of the wise man and the foolish man. And I don't have to reiterate that to you because you know that story. And we sing about that story and we, we understand that story. But when the trial came, when the winds blew, you know, the trials, the, 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 the hard knocks in life came to both the wise and the foolish man, the one guy's house stood and the other guy's house fell. And it was there as a testament for the world to see that one guy got it right and the other guy didn't. Now, do you suppose that uh, when the neighbors decided to build a house, they consulted the foolish man? Do you, th- you suppose that's who they consulted? Well, of course they didn't, not, as, not unless they were extremely foolish. But after that hurricane moved through and the neighbor decided to build a house, he went to the wise man to speak to him because the wise man has had the house that stood. You know, we want to be wise people. And we're told here in this chapter that we should ask God for wisdom. But I ask you, are you willing, am I willing, to accept the way that God wishes to impart wisdom to you? Because God just might want to use a trial that you have faced or will face to impart wisdom to you. Are you willing to accept that? Point four comes from verse 8. Trials promote stability. You know, if I have not experienced trials in life, it has the possibility, at least, of making me a somewhat of a fickle person uh, because I don't know much. I haven't experienced a whole lot. You know, if I have gone through trials and I've related to them well and I've learned some lessons, I probably will become a more stable person. I can speak with more certainty to a situation. And I will be better able to use my past experience for future reference. And I will be able to pass that on to others, perhaps. You know, it's one thing to believe in a concept. And it's good to believe in concepts. We should have conceptual uh, ideas that we know about and we we say we believe in, all right? But it's when it goes into real shoe leather that that concept becomes a reality and I can I can speak from more experience, right? And I, I'll just use the, the example of um, this doctrine of non-resistance we talk about sometimes. I believe in the no- doctrine of non-resistance, and I assume you do too. However... I have not faced and been tried in that doctrine to the extent that my forebears have, have been tried. I haven't. And so thus, I probably am not as, um, while I say I believe it and I believe I do, I have not had to go through the deep waters to test that. And so perhaps I'm not as grounded as I could be. I probably am not because I have not been tested in that particular doctrine. And that's one of the, that's one of the downsides. We have to just admit it. That's one of the downsides of living in a, in a country that allows us freedom. And while I don't wish it any other way, don't hear me wrongly there. We're not tested much in certain areas. You know, Paul, he talks about extreme trials galvanizing his face, faith. In Romans 8, he had this testimony. I am persuaded that neither life, death, angels, principalities, powers, 
things present, things to come, height, depth, or any other creature can separate me from the love of God. Why not? Why couldn't those things separate Paul? It's because Paul had experienced many of these things. And he had went through them and he had seen God's grace be sufficient. And he said, there's no way. God is too faithful. He saw me through these things. There's no way that could separate me from the love of God. Fifth point comes from verses 11 and 12. Trials have a way of leveling the playing field. In verses 11 and 12, it talks about, um, or actually I should have backed up to verse 10. Actually, I have that completely wrong. It's uh, verses um, 10 and 11, not 11 and 12. It talks about the rich man and, and the, the person of low degree and the, uh, and the, um, and the rich person. You know, none of us has trouble um, being promoted. You know, if you're promoted, that's, um, you know, we, we don't have trouble uh, accepting that. It's not hard to get used to. But James says here that the rich should rejoice when he is brought low, when he is made low. Now, that's just a, that's a twisted way of thinking humanly, isn't it? You know, um, so I'm a rich person, and that's all taken away, and I'm made low, and I'm supposed to rejoice in that. That's supposed to be, I'm supposed to count that a good thing. Well, um, again, we're talking about this in the context of hardships and trials. And I'll tell you, you know this already, but trials and troubles are not biased against rich or poor. Now, our society would promote that that's not the case. And every four years, we hear it over and over again, that if the poor just had more opportunity, if they had more education, if they had more resources, and all this, they'd be better off. In other words, riches, education, and insurance of all manner is what we ultimately need. And what society fails to understand is that uh, God's bigger than all that stuff. And if he wishes to place hardship on a person's way, it will happen. He will do that without interruption. We need to have trials to help us to understand that we cannot do and we cannot buy anything to protect ourselves from hardship. And sometimes that's exactly what we need to keep our focus eternal and not become so wrapped up in the things that are temporal. You know, as U.S. citizens, which we all are here, uh, we have we have enjoyed um, financial stability for a long time, uh, quite a few decades. And uh, I couldn't help but think of a of an acquaintance of mine, there, neighbor of mine, that uh, has worked at a manufacturing company in Owatonna for oh, all his life. So he's about 58 years old, and he worked there since he was out of high school, so 40 years. He's looking forward to retirement. He's not, um, he's not bashful or shy to say that. He's very much looking forward to retirement. And he and his wife have worked pretty lucrative jobs all their lives, and they got a, a pretty sizable 401k stashed up. And he has told me on more than one occasion that he's looking forward to retirement so he can use that 401k, he can enjoy life. And, um, and sometimes I'll say, well, you know, um, there's no necessarily any guarantee that we couldn't have some sort of recession or a depression to the point that that 401k could just whoof, just like a pillar of smoke. 
And uh, he doesn't want to talk about that. That he says, you know, you you could tell that that idea, that thought, does not sit very well with him, and that is not something he wants to contemplate very long at all. But I tell you, um, you and me both, um, we need to be thinking seriously about exactly how much stock we put in uh, in the money in the bank, because uh, that could that could disappear pretty quickly. We just need to to think about that. Point number six, I get from verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. Now, I said that in this particular context, it does seem like the the enduring of the temptation would be more thinking about temptation in the way we think about it. But I don't think it's out of context to say, blessed is the man that endures trials. I really believe that that is a very biblical concept. You know, ultimately, when we are pressed with trials and we respond well, there is blessing here and there is blessing later. So, you know, when you think about blessings here from trials, um, what could they be? Well, you know, I think there's a deep soul satisfaction that comes from the fact that when I face a trial, and I do it by God's grace, and I, and I do it well, that there's a there's a there's a joy and a satisfaction that comes to our soul that I think God puts there that we couldn't have any other way. I think we will gain respect of uh, of people. Not that we're we're uh, that's why we do it, but it will be part of it. We will have an ability to relate to people that are facing trials and help them in a way that we could not have done because we never went through that trial. So, in other words, our trial can become someone else's. A bomb to their soul when they face that trial. Many times it deepens our relationship with God and others, and it brings crystal clarity to life. And ultimately later, we will receive a crown of life. Jesus put it very, very well in Luke 18, when he said to his disciples, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left houses, parents, brothers, wife, children, for the kingdom of God's sake. So in other words, he's saying there's nobody that hasn't chose the Christian way, which will probably bring you some trials, and this sounds like a trial to me, to be um, abandoned by your, your wife or brothers or parents. But he said, if these people are willing to do that, he said, you will receive manifold more in this present time. All right, so the the, the, the interest rate is double-digit. Way, way more than you you could possibly imagine. And in the world to come, life everlasting. Who can put it better than that? The last thing I would like to point out comes from verse 17. Trials allow us to correctly conclude what is good. Verse 16 and 17, Don't err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness neither shadow of turning. So what's good? Well, again, I I told you a few minutes ago that in today's world, if you would take the average secular person that has no eternal perspective at all, and you'd say, give me the definition of a good life, he'd, he would probably say, free health care, education, money that I don't have to work too hard for, and regular vacations. Now, that's probably good from his perspective. 
The psalmist had a different perspective, David, in Psalm 119.71. Here's what he says. It is good that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Again, we could look at the Beatitudes, showing the paradox of Christianity and how seemingly bad things turn into things that are exponentially to our advantage. God is a good God, period. Period. He's a good God. 